Hi, you're listening to the New Space India podcast, a bi-weekly talk show that exclusively brings insights from the Indian space activities ecosystem. I'm your host Narayan, the co-founder of India's first space-focused think tank, Spaceport Sarabhai. Guests on the New Space India podcast help you understand space activities related macro and micro trends within India in all aspects including space history, local industry, space science, technology evolution, law and policy, art and more. The New Space India podcast is supported by Dassault Systems, a global leader in providing businesses and people with collaborative virtual environments to enable sustainable innovations. Dassault Systems Solutions supports startups, small and medium scale enterprises and original equipment manufacturers in developing disruptive solutions for space launchers and satellites. Okay. Uh, my name is S Chandrasekhar. I used to work in the Indian Space Research Organization during the period 1993 to sorry, 1974 to 1997. Uh, I joined the space program uh, after graduating with an engineering degree from IIT Madras in 1972. And then I did a couple of years of management or an MBA program at the Indian Institute of Management, Calcutta. And I joined uh, ISRO and the prof- and Professor Davan's group called the Systems Programming Systems Programming and Analysis Group at ISRO headquarters. I think in June 1974, I left ISRO around September 1993 and went on to uh, a faculty position at the Indian Institute of Management, Bangalore. And of course, I've been involved in directly or indirectly with all kinds of space activities even after my leaving ISRO. So this is about some of the things that occurred to me during my tenure at the at the space program in the space program. Uh, I thought some of the things that we experienced at that time would be uh, would be worthwhile for many of the people who don't know anything about the earlier days of what we did in ISRO uh, to become aware of the kinds of challenges and problems that we faced at that time. And the kind of people and the way in which ISRO was organized and the leadership that it provided to a whole host of other uh, entities uh, was something that needs to be kind of aired and become more prominent and well-known. So let me try to let me try to give you a flavor of the kinds of things that uh, happened to me uh, during my tenure at ISRO. I will only talk about the things that uh, I remember very vividly as important. There's a whole lot of other things that have to be studied and understood in greater detail. And it's worth a a major, uh, uh, what I would call a a narrative, a historical narrative, if you want, of what happened and the events and the people involved and what kinds of things made ISRO what it was at that time and what it is today. Uh, so I will try and give you a few of the personal things that I experienced at that time, which kind of stand out even now after so many years. Now, one of the most important things that I remember as a major moment of elation for all of us who worked at ISRO at that time was the launch of the SLV-3. The first launch of the SLV-3 took place around 1980 or 1981. I don't remember the exact date. But I do remember it was a time of jubilation and uh, and a celebration of success. There is a small film that was made at that time by the Films Division of India, or or, or it, 
I think it is worth looking at that film because that film captures something that many of us uh, may not even be aware of today. It showed the kind of joy and the kind of uh, unanimity of this great achievement that we thought we had achieved at that time. And it kind of symbolized the fact that ISRO at that time believed that after the launch of uh, SLV-3, we could do practically anything in the world. And, you know, technology was not a constraint. Money was not a constraint. So it was like, you know, the whole world and the whole opportunity space was there for us to take. It was a moment of jubilation and joy for all of us. It was a fantastic event. But let's not forget that before this event happened, the first launch of the SLV-3, which happened, I think, in 1979, actually failed. And what I remember about that failure, and uh, again, I cannot forget uh, the greatness of our uh, of uh, my boss, Professor Davan, uh, who actually uh, did, a, did something that amazed me at that time. Uh, he actually, after the failure, he actually took responsibility for the failure. And I remember he made a, uh, he made a statement as, uh, as, as something that he said, is, we, we did not fail. He said something like we were partially unsuccessful. And, you know, that statement created a lot of controversy in the press. Even today, you can see some of the controversy regarding space activities that comes out in the newspapers and affects everybody else. But what I remember most vividly about that, about that particular moment was that Professor Davan actually took responsibility. And not only did he take the responsibility, he also wrote a letter of resignation and sent it to the prime minister to say, he said, I take complete responsibility for what happened. And he did tender his resignation at that time. I happen to be aware, many of many people may not be aware of, of this particular event, but I was there at that time, and it definitely happened. Uh, and in contrast, when SLV-3 actually succeeded in, in, in 1981, Professor Davan did not come and talk about it himself. He made sure that... Dr. Kalam, who was responsible for the for the SLV-3 architecture at that time, actually made all the public statements. So, in a sense, it showed it kind of. I remember this very gray, uh, very vividly because Professor Davan was this great inspiration for a lot of us at that time. Not only was he an inspiration in talking, he was also an inspiration in the way he did things, and I believe that was one of the most important parts in my life. Uh, and his impact on what I do and how I do it is still there after so many years, even though he is not around anymore. The second incident that I would like to talk about is a little bit more personal, I would argue. Uh, see, one of the things we set up in ISRO in the early days was a number of study groups that tried to look at what the future was. And it so happened that after joining, I became involved in the remote sensing program uh, of India. I and another couple of colleagues, Rajan, Sudarshan too, to some extent, uh, were important uh, components of some of these things. And uh, we, Professor Davan set up this study group for looking at remote sensing satellites. And I was the member secretary of that study group. And actually we actually produced a report, which in, in a sense set the kind of trend for the IRS. So I had what I call the beginnings of the remote sensing satellite program. Uh, I was involved in it. And I think the satellite got launched in 1988, okay? So that 12-year period in my, I saw the satellite from conception through the uh, phases of initial uh, technological components being developed across the board. And then I saw it actually being made. I was involved in a lot of the activities associated with its making. Uh, 
I was involved in the mission planning and all that all all that went with the mission planning of it. And finally, when it was launched, I was so I actually saw this cycle from conception all the way to uh, realization, orbit delivery, and then when I saw the first picture that it showed, I think it was a picture of the coast of Tamil Nadu, and uh, it was like a you know one of those really fulfilling moments in my life. And of course, you feel very high, and you think that yeah, we have achieved this, and there is nothing that we cannot achieve. It was a, it was a fantastic. Uh, and uh, the fact about IRS was the other thing that made you very proud about IRS was uh, ISRO actually came up with this choice of the sensor. The sensor complement on IRS was based upon a technology called charge coupled device technology, and it was fundamentally different from the major technology which NASA had pioneered called the multi-spectral scanner technology. And I remember the study group with with which I was associated. One of my colleagues from the Space Application Center, I don't know whether people know him, Dr. George Joseph and his group, the sensor development group there, they actually came up with the with the idea that the NASA technology had kind of reached its limit and it was no longer capable of growing, uh, you know, no longer capable of becoming. Uh, you need a higher resolution capability as we go forward, and India had this peculiar problem of small field sizes. and therefore high resolution requirement was important so i remember a presentation that dr george joseph made to our group which actually said that the current technology or the one that we were trying to follow had reached its limit and that we should look at the new technology some of the study group was able to understand the implications and we actually pushed a lot of it i mean we have documented this so i will make that report available so that you people can we actually documented how it happened the people involved the processes is more like a, how innovation happens happened in this world at that time it's it's a report that i can make available to all of you and uh, you know it uh, it it actually moved i think isro was one of the earliest countries in the world to embrace this technology and i think the french and we were almost parallel or almost simultaneous in our choice of this uh, sensor for the payload of irs and uh, what happened is as a consequence the path to high resolution and uh, you know addressing genuine problems of indian agriculture opened up and i think after i left isro in 93 95 or so irs 1c was launched and irs 1c when it was launched for a certain period i think had the distinction that it was the satellite with the highest civilian remote sensing resolution in the world i think maybe for a period of 5 or 6 years it and i think that choice still uh, enables isro to kind of take a leadership role in the remote sensing satellites of the world and i believe that uh, you know so my involvement and support and uh, all that happened as a part of that is a truly remarkable experience for a person like me and i i have to say that a group of us who understood this and you know kind of did it and it's all documented and of course one cannot rule out the role of professor davan and my other colleague rajan who was involved in it and a lot of my colleagues from uh, right this was something that uh, that i thought i should share with uh, with a larger audience so this was one thing that i i would like to add the third thing i mean or the I don't know whether to call it third or fourth. Uh, so one of the early satellites, remote sensing satellites, that we employed was called Baskara, which had a very 
poor one kilometer resolution. It was a kind of building block for IRS at that time. And it had this television camera uh, payload to take pictures of the Earth's surface. Uh, when it was launched, the cameras were switched on, but there is a high voltage section in TV, right? And you kind of do some technological uh, porting or to make sure that. So there was some problem and the high voltage section created a kind of spark that prevented the cameras from getting switched on. Uh, so we decided to put off the cameras and use the other payload, which was a microwave radiometer in order to be able to do something with it. And then uh, our analysis and all our experts had done a lot of simulation and they felt that because of the gases that were responsible for the sparking, if you allow time, the gases would diffuse out because of the vacuum in space. And maybe after some time, we would be able to switch the camera on. So the proposal was that after about a year of working of Bhaskara 1, we would try to switch the camera on again. Now we had a meeting in, uh, I think in the satellite center, and I think Professor Dhawan was there and all of us were there. And there was this debate about whether we should or should not do it. Now there was a view that if you put it on and the satellite had a problem, we would lose the satellite. And there was the other view that we should take the risk because anyway, most of the mission things had been done. And if you get the image, actually the objectives would be realized. So there was this huge debate within ISRO. And at the end of it, we decided that uh, we would go ahead with that. I have a colleague of mine in the satellite center called P.S. Goyal, who was very sure that the camera would work. And uh, Professor Dhawan, who was also there, said, uh, he, I mean, he, while he was for the thing, he also said that uh, he, so he actually said something like, we'll take a bet, you know, I can, I can be sure and all that. So I think there was this bet between Professor Dhawan and him. And I think the bet was for a rupee, one rupee. And Professor Dhawan said that if it really works, I will give you one rupee. And uh, so I think finally, when we did switch it on, the camera did work. And we did take a lot of pictures. And we were all very proud of it and all that. And I think Professor Dhawan gave a one rupee note to Goel, signed by him and all that. I don't know whether he still has it, but I still remember that uh, very vividly as one of the a kind of way in which ISRO looked at all these problems and the camaraderie and the kind of give and take that happens between a very high level and I don't know, not so high system and of management within the system. So this was uh, something that, uh, I mean, still, uh, still comes to, you know, uh, still comes to me. Uh, the, the fourth or the other thing I would like to talk about is the, uh, you know, some of the notions that organizations have about uh, how easy or how difficult it is to build on technology that we have achieved and to kind of, uh, you know, improve it. Now, I remember that after we did SLV, the question is, or even before we did SLV, Professor Dhawan had already started the work about trying to do what was what had to be done. Of course, one requirement was the PSLV. I'll talk a little bit later about the PSLV, but I thought it's useful to mention that we also came up with this idea of what I call, you know, the uh, augmented satellite launch vehicle or the ASLV as we used to call it. In, okay. And uh, <clears throat> the idea was that, you know, SLV had four stages. So you would add two uh, equivalent first stages to the, to the first stage. So you had a, a kind of strap on uh, boosters to the first stage. And you would then go from a 40 kilogram payload to a 150 kilogram payload. And uh, because of that, you would, uh, you know, you could do significantly more things in, in space. 
uh, we debated this extensively and uh, I think finally the organization decided that we would go with it. I think the first launch happened after Professor Dhawan had left. He had, he had quit as chairman. And uh, we realized uh, the first, uh, the, the, the rocket took off, okay. And just as the two uh, booster stages were going to separate, right, about 50 seconds into the flight, it failed, okay. Um, so there was the usual failure uh, analysis and all that. And a lot of people said uh, there's some fail-safe device that prevents it, you know, prevents the satellite from exploding on the launch pad. Maybe we should take it out and all this. So this was like a top, top-down-led investigation of the failure. And, uh, you know, many people at the top felt that this was the reason for the failure and maybe that's why the failure happened. So they fixed that and we did the second launch of ASLV. And if you look at the second launch of ASLV, it failed almost exactly at the same time. You know, again, at the separation of the, you know, of, of the booster from the first stage. And uh, so there was this, uh, you know, so there was a lot of introspection and debate within ISRO about why. And since the two failures are very similar, you know, maybe there's an underlying reason that we didn't understand what was the reason. And uh, so we had this time an investigation committee from outside. It was led by Professor Narsima, who's also a student of Professor Dhawan and a member of the Space Commission maybe at that time. And that investigation came up with a very detailed assessment of what the failure was. So it came out that it was adding those two strap-ons was just not an incremental change on SLV, but a fundamental radical change in the architecture. So the way changes in complicated linkages of technology, it's called architectural changes, kind of impact performance was something that we, we all assumed that by doing it, it's easy to do. We all wanted it to be easy, right? In a sense, so you can argue that it's an organization belief that what we were doing was un logical, understandable, but technology is not like that, right? When you add those two strap-on boosters, it's not an incremental change to the vehicle, but a fundamental alteration in the vehicle parameters. So this was a lesson that was bitterly learned by ISRO. But I think the greatness of ISRO was that not only did it learn this lesson well, it also assimilated this, and we brought a lot of this to, uh, into the P PSLV design. And as you can see, the PSLV design is a robust design based upon this kind of learning. And therefore, the ASLV, in my opinion, even though it, we didn't continue with it as a major project, was a learning platform for a lot of things that actually happened on PSLV. So this is like, you know, what you need to do internally in order to learn the right lessons and to kind of improve upon it and therefore to go forward. So I, I, I would argue that this was another main thing that uh, was characteristic of ISRO of that time. It was a learning organization. It learned from failures and it kind of built on that learning. So I think that was one thing that I would, I would like to uh, kind of emphasize. <clears throat> so... Let's get on to uh, PSLV, okay? I mean, my point would be that uh, the PSLV possibly represents one of the most successful uh, launchers, uh, not only built by India, but it, it would stand on par with almost any launcher built anywhere in the world. And um, when it was configured, okay, um, it was uh, a very odd combination, right? We had the solid rocket, and then we had a liquid uh, stage, then we had another solid stage, and the original design had a fourth solid stage. And then finally, I think due to differences and the way we had to inject something into orbit, it was replaced with a liquid stage. 
and uh, in my opinion uh, that configuration was odd you know many rockets were liquid rockets nobody had a solid rocket and it was an architecture that was indigenously done and a lot of people used to make all kinds of comments okay including um, uh, whether it would fly at all or not so i i would argue that it was an architecture it was largely uh, it largely came from within isro and a lot of it had to do with uh, professor davan's understanding of it and maybe all the the technical capability of our trivandrum center vscc which is in my opinion the heart of uh, isro's technology and uh, so it was it was one of those uh, you know friend, uh, architectures that and it had several very original uh, uh, kind of approaches and it had a lot of indigenous uh, technology that had been pushed earlier but it kind of saw fruition in it i just like to talk to you about a few of them so one was this architecture which everybody said was not going to necessarily be uh, question whether it would work or not uh, the other thing that uh, that it had it had this control system that was i think very unique in the world and that uniqueness largely came about because of the constraints that isro faced one of the constraints that isro faced was the fact that uh, we did not get the required microprocessor uh, capability because they all came under export embargoes i think by the time pslv had come mtcr was in force and the microprocessors are the heart of our control systems so computers computing capabilities is key to that and so therefore and we had to do therefore with conventional microprocessors and conventional microprocessor not what are called space quality right so we had to take regular uh, microprocessors screen them put them through some kind of environmental testing and finally use them so pslv had this unique control architecture where there were four microprocessors that were working in parallel okay and if one failed the other three could do the job if two failed the other other two could job and they were cross trapped in such a way right that effectively i mean unless all of them failed effectively the mission would be successful now i remember that we had these so professor davan and uh, you know maybe uh, professor davan wanted a review of uh, of whether you know of all that so we got a couple of experts from i think from nasa some people from esa european space agency the national aeronautics and space administration and they came and they looked at it and they were actually shocked they said nowhere in the world right have you seen such an architecture he said most of our vehicles use one microprocessor right for the control logic say so let's not forget a launcher is not going to last it's not going to do a function for a very long time it's going to take a short time it has to work reliably only for a very short time so the problems of reliability are kind of different for but you know so they were amazed at this and i i would argue that the pslv therefore represented a very very and the software very complicated software and logic but i must say that our greatness in in vssc was the fact that it has worked it has worked so well and i think pslv as i said has been one of the most successful uh, launchers anywhere in the world and therefore it so the point i'm making is indigenous capability indigenous design robustness is is kind of very very important part now pslv has other great things that i i think is worth it represented a lot of indigenous uh, capability one of the choices that isro had to make was about choice of propellant the standard propellant that slv used was something called polybuta acrylonitrile sudarshan would be in a better position to talk in greater detail but let me give you the gist of what i know 
So the ISRO people felt that it was antiquated, a little old fashioned, and that we should push the latest in terms of the technology requirement that is needed. And that was something called hydroxyl turbinated polybutadiene. I remember a meeting in ISRO headquarters where this was debated. And finally, ISRO didn't have any, any understanding of it. It didn't have any capability also. It was a kind of lab scale demonstration. And we took the risk and said, we will go with that. So hydroxy terminated polybutadiene without a lot of backing, just like the CCD decision, right? We took that decision and we went with it and we developed it, we transferred it to industry, it went into production and then it went into the rocket and it's performed very successfully. So this was one other choice. The third thing that I think you should talk about a little bit was, uh, you know, we, we had these, uh, the critical part of a, of a rocket is going to be the guidance system and gyros are very important for that. ISRO had invested a lot of money in something called uh, floated gyros. They use a lubricant, a liquid lubricant in order to, gyros have to spin at very high speeds, so they need to be lubricated, okay? And they used uh, liquid floated gyros as the main, uh, as the main requirement for it. Uh, a couple of people, uh, I, uh, in a, you know, one of the major uh, innovation groups in VSSE was a group headed by uh, Mr. Veda Chalam, right? Who actually, in a sense, was one of the innovation pioneers. Many people may not know about his contribution, but I thought I should tell you something about that because, and so he and his group, I think a couple of engineers in his group, uh, came up with this notion that the alternative technology, which was kind of emerging, was something called dry-tuned gyros, which did not involve liquid lubricants, but a kind of dry approach to doing it. I don't want to go into the technical details, but it, it, it was kind of a new technology that is evolving, right? So the question is whether we should stick with the old technology and the investments we've made or go with the new technology. I remember a huge meeting again in, in uh, maybe VSSC, right? And uh, we finally again decided to go with this dry tune. And dry tune gyros flew not only in PSLV, uh, they also flew in IRS, which also requires gyros. And therefore, it represented a major leapfrogging in a very critical area. Guidance and control is possibly the most, the heart of any uh, launcher or satellite. And that was one. And Veda Chalam's group also pioneered what I call the solar array drives. The, you know, one of the requirements for a, for a satellite is that the solar panels have to get deployed and the, the, so, the, the panels have to rotate in sequence with the uh, capturing the maximum, uh, what shall we say, uh, light from the sun. So they rotate along with the orbit, okay? And therefore they need to be continuously working for a satellite mission. Those, those arrays were also developed by the same group, right? And uh, uh, they did also these momentum wheels that are required for satellites which uh, kind of provide the heart of the control uh, system. So all these uh, things were done by this group at Trivandrum. And I think Apple, IRS, and uh, you know, or PSLV were all kind of common elements that uh, benefited from this. So therefore, uh, and uh, I think finally, which I, I think I should also talk about it. Uh, one of the other requirements is the structural part, you know, the, so the part that has to do with the so ISRO used a French steel called 15CDV6 in the SLV3. And the question is whether we should continue to use them or replace them, right? I think Sudarshan, my colleague here, actually talked about maraging steel, which is the alternative, which was state of the art at that time. And uh, we, uh, I mean, all of us at that time felt that it was the way to go. 
and there was this debate 15 cdv6 we had investments we had uh, you know mastered everything whether we should go with maraging steel maraging steel involved a lot of problems because you had to go to get it fabricated a lot of heat treatment was involved so we had to tie up with dmrl and a whole lot of other other entities sudarshan actually did a lot of that work and uh, finally we did go with uh, maraging steel and again it represented in my opinion a major push in the technology side so i would argue that apple irs and uh, you know uh, uh, and pslv gave us this major head start in key areas of technology and most of these technology developments came about because of davan's in- insistence that we create a lot of internal study groups that kind of weld the you know kind of link the silos of you know structure control you know uh, different domains of knowledge into something that actually makes sense for a program so the projectization the programization and, and the kind of cross links that we created actually created this hybrid organization so it was a combination of a formal vertical structure and an informal kind of networking that created a what i would call a, a very innovative organization so pslv irs and apple therefore represent you know a kind of major intermediate steps and they were all creations of professor dawn okay and uh, so that was that was something that i thought i should uh, talk about okay now what else can i say yeah uh, i think one should also look at uh, insat little bit because uh, i was maybe not directly involved in all of it but peripherally involved maybe a little bit and some parts of it more directly involved okay so when professor dawan took over in the early 70s uh there was a major problem sarabhai had come up with this notion of insat okay and everybody knew that a communication satellite in geostationary orbit and the ability to reach it so gslv and insat were the kind of goals that isro wanted to kind of get at, get at uh and therefore uh, you know uh we needed to be able to build right communication satellites that would serve indian needs this was a major challenge for us at that time i think sarabhai if he had continued to be alive might have made it happen but when professor davan took over things were not that good now i have actually seen a letter right i mean during my time in isro i actually seen a letter from the secretary ministry of communications i don't know whether it was to uh, vikram sarabhai or to professor davan i don't remember very clearly who it was but that letter very clearly stated that the ministry of communications and the department of communications did not see any merit in launching a communication satellite for india in other words there was no user interest in in uh, communication satellites so professor davan had a major problem uh, how do we go about trying to resolve that problem i think this is where i think professor davan's mastery of strategy and and understanding of politics is kind of important i i thought i would therefore talk about it so he had to get a, a base of users to agree because insat required money and it also required support and he could not go to the government without guaranteeing that the user ministries actually did not say it should not be required okay i mean they actually at least should say be neutral or also supported ideally he wanted them to support it so so we were going through this debate of how do we do that okay and how do we garner support so one of the things that we came up with was that we would do a lot of experiments so professor davan came up with this uh, experiments communication satellite experiments where we got hold of a european uh, space agency's symphony satellite 
and they gave us the satellite on loan and we demonstrated a lot of ground-based communications experiments with Symphony. That was a kind of intermediate application kind of focus. Then we had this opportunity to launch Apple, right? There was a development flight of the Ariane and the European Space Agency wanted some, you know, some country uh, to take the risk. It might fail to take the risk and put a satellite. And if the, so, I mean, they would give, a, give us the launch free. Of course, we didn't have to pay for it. In those days, we didn't have the money to pay for it, maybe. And, uh, and uh, so this opportunity was available. And ISRO saw that opportunity. And Professor Dhawan, in a sense, saw that opportunity. And we decided that we would bid for that. And the Apple satellite came directly out of that uh, opportunity space. And we pushed it. In a two-year development, we actually made it work. I'll talk a little bit about Apple a little bit later, about one of the things that happened, but that, that was some. So we had this nucleus of sorts being created in parallel, and therefore we needed a way in which INSAT could be progressed, because after Apple, we had to go to INSAT. Clearly, that was what was needed. So Professor Dhawan then came up with this fantastic possibility that apart from the communication requirement, we could also add a, what is called a very high-resolution radiometer, which actually takes a picture of the weather patterns in the country. And you know that cyclones are major problems for India. And one cyclone can create so much damage. And if you can at least prevent or warn against the cyclone, you can actually save a lot of lives. So here you had an application possibility that if it could be combined with the communication possibility, can actually justify the cost of building an insight. And maybe the benefits are likely to exceed the cost, right? This was a calculus that I think uh, uh, Professor Dhawan had made. And uh, we did a lot of work in order to kind of back it up and support it to, to do that. And therefore, the idea of bringing in a, 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 a kind of weather payload or a weather camera, to, to put it very crudely, into the INSAT program was largely a political decision in order to justify the program and to make sure that the government supported the program. So this was a master political move. But it had a number of consequences, which I think I must also talk a little bit about so that you understand the totality. Now, the moment, no, at that time in the world, there was only one satellite that I remember had a combination of a communication payload and the, and the weather payload. And that was the ATS-6 satellite, which had been used for the site experiments. You know, it had been moved to a location over India or near India. And we used it for the satellite instruction television experiment that Sarabhai had kind of come up with. And that happened during Professor Dhawan's time. So it was, it was to show that education can be reach, reach the villages of the country through space. Okay. That was the kind of message that was uh, done that. So no other satellite had ever had this combination. Okay. And it had a lot of what I call architecture. The satellite architecture will therefore get affected by this combination. So we did a lot of work and we came to the conclusion that in spite of all the complications, the satellite was doable. So one of the requirements for the inside specification was that we would have not only a communication payload and a TV broadcast, both are what I call electronic transponder based things. And in combination, we will have a, an imaging instrument for the, for the weather, right? So IMD, Ministry of Communications, and Doordarshan, or Information and Broadcasting, became our three major users for the INSAT program. Now, this had a consequence because when the satellite was designed, uh, the VHRR require, uh, instrument cannot directly look at the sun. Okay, It has a problem. 
So because of infrared detectors, if they see the sun, will stop functioning. Okay. So they had to make sure that the satellite orientation was such that it would never look at the sun. So if you have solar panels deployed on either side, the solar panel reflection would affect directly the imaging instrument and all that. So they had to move the panel, huge panel, because inside required a lot of panel, to one side. So the moment they moved it to one side, there's a question of stability of the satellite. right? So in order to provide that stability, they had to deploy a very long boom on the other side. So that was the architecture that, that came up. Now, Insat 1A was launched. The boom, you know, the Insat 1A was bought from Ford Aerospace because we couldn't build it in time. And, you know, so they came up with this design, great design, very well uh, conceptualized. But unfortunately, the boom did not deploy. Okay. So one of the consequences was that the boom did not deploy. And Insat 1 effectively didn't, uh, you know, last very long. I mean, it kind of. So there was this, you know, churn again and all that. But ISRO stuck to this logic that it was a technically correct solution and the subsequent INSAT satellites actually worked. And many INSAT 2 satellites which were built in India also followed. And in almost all cases, I think in all cases, the deployment of the boom and all that did work very well. So this fundamental choice is no longer an issue. I think because of developments and the increased need for communications, the two payloads may now be separated. But in principle, ISRO could still build these satellites and, you know, either separate them or do them together. Both options are available. So this is another question about how the political part of what we are talking about can actually have technological consequences and actually create an impetus to be different. And I would argue a little bit original. So once again, you can see that kind of thing happening in inside. Okay, so this was the other thing that uh, I thought I should uh, talk to you. And... Uh, so what else can I talk about? Okay, let me talk a little bit about uh, something to do with geopolitics. Okay, since I was directly involved in a lot of it, a couple of things stick out in my mind, which I think I must at least talk about. Uh, one of the things that uh, I remember um, was the India signing the four uh, space treaties. Okay. Now, when I joined ISRO, Professor Dhawan had already thought about signing, okay? So there are four treaties on space. The mother treaty is something called the Outer Space Treaty, which lays the basic foundation stone. And then there is a uh, liability convention, which says that if somebody launches a rocket and that rocket lands somewhere, or if some satellite re-enters and it enters over some, it can cause damage. And how do you address the issue of damage? Okay, so that was the other treaty. Then astronauts uh, uh, go into space at that time, right? What happens if an astronaut lands in some other country, et cetera, and all that? What do you, you know, what kind of legal arrangement that you should and all that? And then the fourth one was what is called the registration convention, which means every satellite that is launched into orbit, you have to provide details to the international community. You know, uh, orbit, you know, perigee, apogee, what kind of payload, where is it launched from? And there's an international numbering sequence that gives you all that number and all that. So these were the four treaties. Now, I think India had signed all of them. But signing in the UN parliaments is not the same as ratification. You need to accede to the treaty formally. And we had never acceded. Okay. So going back to 67, we have never acceded to any of the treaties. So when I joined ISRO, I was working with Professor Dhawan on trying to get... Uh, you know, uh, Indian ratification, because Professor Dhawan believed that since we took a lot of help from international organizations, you know, uh, Bhaskara One, Aryabhata, right, Sait, we also needed to show that we are responsible uh, 
citizens in the space world. And he felt that signing that would indicate that India is a responsible space power. And uh, we put a lot of effort into it, right? I think I must have had about four or five huge files of correspondence. So we, the Ministry of Defense had some concerns about internal security. Our external affairs had some concerns about something else, right? So there's a huge, uh, you know, government bureaucracy is a huge problem, right? So we, I mean, from 74 when I joined till about 78 or 79, this thing was going on, you know. Every time Professor Dhawan went to Delhi, he would go and meet the cabinet secretary or go and meet the defense secretary and try to get them to understand what was the reason. But it got tangled in this huge mess of bureaucratic red tapism and all kinds of things. So nothing happened. And what happened is there was this, uh, there was this uh, American uh, space laboratory called Skylab. That's, you know, it had a problem initially. One of the panels didn't work and all that. So it got into a problem right from the start. But they were able to operate it. It's like a space station, not like a lab. It's more like a space station. So what happened is it kind of started decaying. They lost, uh, you know, they didn't have enough propellant to control it. It started decaying. And there was a likelihood that it would re-enter the Earth. It's a huge satellite, 80 tons or something like that. And when it disintegrates in the atmosphere, large pieces are likely to land. Fortunately or unfortunately for ISRO, one of the areas over which it landed was the Indian Ocean and India. You know, so NASA had said there's a high probability that uh, this would land over India. Uh, and I was in Delhi with Professor Dhawan and we were having a meeting about, uh, we were preparing, we were having a preparation, preparation meeting for this United Nations conference that was scheduled for 1982, I think. So we were ha having, or we, I don't remember, maybe we were having a meeting in Delhi when suddenly this issue came up, you know. And the question then was start, if it lands in India, does India have any legal recourse to being able to handle that problem? Overnight, you know, what we had been working on became a high priority issue, right? And I remember there was this joint secretary in the Ministry of External Affairs, a person called K.P. Jane, you know, um, so we were wondering what to do. You know, Professor da I mean, we were saying, you know, we have been trying, you know, all this stuff. So he took on himself the responsibility uh, to do it. So we had to do it just before, uh, you know, Skylab really re-entered. So we didn't have that much time. I, I don't remember the dates, but maybe you can check it out and see. But I do remember we didn't have a lot of time. Okay. And uh, at that time, then, uh, you know, he said we will push it and all that. So he took upon himself the responsibility. And he managed to uh, managed to get the government paperwork done to make sure that we acceded to the treaty. I think two days or three days before the re-entry of Skylab. So my point is, you know, you spend a lot of time doing the obvious, but it takes a crisis in order to finally. And I think there was some weird comment. They said in order not to make it appear. I mean, this was the comment in order to make it appear that we are not doing it because of the re-entry of Skylab. We will sign two, the liability convention and the astronaut convention maybe first. And then after, a, uh, after some time, we will sign the other two treaties. I think finally, we, so we signed these two treaties just a couple of days or two or three days before the entry of Skylab. And the other two treaties we signed again together a little later. And there's the other treaty that was being negotiated called the Moon Treaty about how the resources of the Moon are to be used and all that. So we signed that again, uh, maybe together with the other two treaties. So this was the other thing that uh, you, you kind of see uh, happening. Uh, 
so the other thing on the on the geopolitical thing was i must tell you a little bit about the launch services agreement that we had with the soviet union for irs i'm sorry i do a lot on irs because of more intimately involved with that uh, there are of course many other things that one can talk about but uh, so we we had this uh, so we had to launch irs and uh, uh, the soviet union was an obvious candidate because in my opinion they done the baskara launches and uh, professor davan wanted it to be a commercial launch he said we don't want this free bit we should do a commercial launch so we had a committee three of us i think dr kasturi rangan who was the project director for irs at that time mr seshan who was our additional secretary or joint secretary at that time and i we were the three members of the committee and uh, so professor davan insisted you know we need to compare so we looked at tor delta we looked at ariane a whole lot of other launches and we came up with this possibility that we should uh, look at uh, the soviet launch and we came up with the justification for the soviet launch right now one of the issues that came up during that time was uh, whether we should launch liability you know this bit i was talking about whether we should take insurance now insat had preceded a lot of those negotiations now the americans always insist that liability for launch right should not be with them right so they have a limit all liabilities less than 500 million dollars will be covered by you need to go to an insurance company and take insurance so that if there is a liability claim the insurance company will pay nasa will be liable only or us will be liable only because all countries not nasa us will be liable only if it exceeds 500 million something like that they had and we had negotiated in sat and so you know the standard isro practices we go to lloyds in london and take an insurance i think it was about 100000 200000 in those it's quite a lot of money okay i mean we were not exactly floating in money in those days so it was quite a lot of money um so when we were doing this uh, you know mr session and all had been involved in those kinds of negotiations now i had been only peripherally involved in that but i understood russia i mean soviet union quite well and i know that they are strict interpreters of the legal part so we had this internal debate about how do we do it according to the liability convention all it says is that we should get to, get into an agreement with the launching state about liability it doesn't say you know you should do insurance or and that was a practice that nasa had followed so i was saying that we should talk to them and and ask them what happens if there is a failure right rather than going and saying we'll take insurance and do that right so we had this huge debate and all professor davan said there's no harm finally in trying it and we should go and try that i remember we went and explored this possibility and i think the russians only said our soviets only said this they said we will be responsible for the launch if the launch fails we'll give you another launch free okay that was what they said at that time so this was uh, something that uh, also was uh, i thought uh, kind of uh, you know i would say you know we were willing to go and try it out you know and it's not as though hierarchy and uh, knowledge had some value let me put it that way uh, of course mr session was a great uh, was a fantastic person also in his own way so whatever professor davan said he would finally do whatever it whatever it took i'll talk a little bit about him later when uh, so the point uh, that you are really making is that this was something that uh, i will remember because we did save i don't know 200000 dollars not a lot of money but it was something that uh, i felt proud about uh the other thing about the launch was the price okay we had uh, so i remember we negotiated with them and session mr session's a hard negotiator and uh, so we 
and they were the the so the soviets were very very nice okay absolutely generous they said so we brought the price down to 7.5 crores for the if you compare it a thor delta would have cost us about uh, 30 35 crores aryan might have cost about 30 35 crores so we were really about four times or five times cheaper than the international thing so i think we went and met professor davan and uh, i think all of us and kasturi rangan myself and mr station we all agreed that they could possibly bring down the price okay further if we negotiate harder professor davan told us that i don't want any more negotiation you said 7.5 crore is a steal we will stick with that i don't want any more things to be negotiated we definitely need to make sure that uh, we honor what the soviets have given us okay so that was his take on it so this happened and we agreed on that price and then finally the contract had to be signed in moscow okay so professor davan uh, and i think dr rangan and my colleague rajan i didn't go to moscow so this is second hand so i don't know but this is what they used to tell me so we went to so the final uh, thing was being signed in moscow at that time the indian ambassador to moscow was uh, was ambassador ahuja okay and uh, he i thought he he was i i have not met him but he according to all the people who were there he is very much like a russian so he said this price is too high right and we must reduce it uh, even further professor davan was not very comfortable with that i'm sure he was not i mean although i was not there i would assume that he was not and uh, so apparently the the minister and ambassador hoja went in into a I don't know whether vodka was drunk. This is the story I've heard. Uh, some toasts were exchanged, and the price came down from seven point five crores to four point five, some number like that. Okay, and so that is uh, something that uh, we all, uh, I mean, all the people who are insiders, we kind of used to talk about it. I don't know whether anybody still remembers it, but I thought it's something that you should know. So it was a very what I would call again a very informal. Uh, a uh, formal informal combination that made isro what it was okay uh, so that is the one uh, thing that uh, i thought i should uh, talk about what are the other things i can talk about i can talk about some of the people i think isro was at that time gifted i would argue with some of the most capable people in the country we were actually i think an organization that had the best technical talent right Uh, as i said vssc is a fantastic technology organization uh, isac is very good space application center where a lot of things happened is also very good a launch complex in shrikutra staffed with a lot of and a lot of engineers of all kinds i talked about veda chalam george joseph many of our engineers are fantastic they are very good uh, <clears throat> but i must talk a little bit about some of the other people i talked about veda chalam talked about sudarshan I had this colleague Rajan, who was my boss, immediate boss in ISRO. He kind of integrated all components of the program. He was a scientific secretary, the second scientific secretary in ISRO. In my opinion, he actually created the job. He actually grew and created the job. He worked very closely with Professor Davan, and he was a kind of linking pin amongst all the programs. Okay, he kind of, and he provided this combination of what I would call uh, integrity. uh and difference right and uh, he was fantastic in his job so he was one person i will never forget and uh, sudarshan my other colleagues in isro they are all very important parts of one's life at that time yeah 
so we had a very close knit very very capable group under professor davan but that was not his role that was only part of his role dr bram prakash of who headed the trivandrum center in my opinion was not only in one sense even ahead of professor davan he was the saint i would argue and uh, he was actually the unifying force that made slv3 possible because vssc is talented capable but it's also political very political and dr bp was the person whose whose what i call the way he lived and the way he did things kind of united and brought together these diverse very different political entities within uh, the heart of isro's technology capability and i would argue that he made slv possible now this is also one of the few times i know in indian organization especially government organizations i don't know whether to say professor daman was number 1 and uh, dr bp was number 2 i don't see that as that i think they were both equal in a sense i would argue that dr bp was even a little bit ahead of professor daman in terms of his own uh, stature and nobody talks about dr bp anyway you know that's one of the sad things that we we have so this was one of those rare occasions where these two people really worked uh, you know in tandem and made all this technology that is so created possible and i i would argue that uh, this was one of the i have never known the number 1 and number 2 or the number 2 and 1 and 2 either way to work so well together i have not seen it after that i have not seen it in any other government entity i think it was one of those very unique things that made isro what it is today so that is one part the other thing i would like to take is a talent other talent that we are talking about professor yashpal was the director of the space application center uh, everybody knows him right he was also in my opinion the only person whom i know who was unanimously elected by a very political body called the united nations uh, committee on the peaceful uses of outer space to become the secretary general of the second united nations conference it was an honor to india and it simply honored the fact that professor yashpal represented in my opinion what they thought was the best in indian science and technology right he was my guru at the uni uan and he taught me and rajan a lot of things that we all learned uh, from him so he is one person i i will always uh, i remember we used to have dinner together and uh, professor yashpal taught me how to cook okay so we had this kitchenette in our uh, small uh, room in one of the hotels in new york and professor yashpal told told me how to make the i i used to be i still am vegetarian so he said if you are vegetarian you have no problem so you better learn how to cook so he actually taught me how to cook i think professor rao and i when we used to go together we kind of continued the tradition professor rao is also a pretty good uh, cook and we used to have these debates about who's better and all that but it, it is very much there so he is uh, so professor yashpal uh, professor rao uh, professor rao also in his own way you know uh, was uh, a builder of uh, of uh, the satellite center there's no doubt about that and then mr session i must say that he was uh, possibly uh, very very competent extremely uh, knowledgeable uh, likes power liked power and the exercise of power but beneath it a very good human being because uh, you know the few times you've had some personal issues and you've gone to him although we used to argue and debate about everything and we would never agree on anything in the formal meetings uh, he was absolutely a great person in terms of how he dealt with all of us and uh, i you know i think isro does owe him quite a bit okay dr kalam i don't have to talk about uh, he saw slv3 and he i mean slv3 was possibly the most complicated project india had undertaken at that time 
and a lot of it was possible because of the Brahm Prakash, Abdul Kalam, Satish Dhawan. I would say Satish Dhawan third, but important. They were the three people who actually made it happen. So that is uh, something that you talk about. I, I would also like to talk about Dr. Govarika's group that pioneered a lot of the propellants and you know all the stuff that they made, uh, ammonium perchlorate, all the materials that we needed for that were, were, were uh, done by them. I talked about Vedachalam and, and his contribution. Dr. Kasturi Rangan, who, uh, the project director of IRS, very close friend and uh, another great uh, you know, person who all, all of them, you know, became successful in different parts of the space program. So I would argue that one of the things that you remember are all these uh, bonds of uh, experience, friendship, and uh, right, all that, which kind of, even now, you know, kind of keep us, even though we are all in the declining part of our life, you know, kind of keeps us going. So that was, I, I would argue that uh, this was, the, you know, the period I spent is like this, Shangri-La, a uh, place, right, where uh, yeah, I think you suspend disbelief, you believe that anything can be done. And I mean, the demonstration of a lot of it was that. So you had what I call, uh, you know, Professor Ashpal called it suspension of disbelief or something like that. All right. So my point is that was the ISRO of that time, right. And uh, I have another couple of things to talk about, but I thought I will reserve them. I don't know, time? Okay. Uh, so maybe I'll talk a little bit about two other things that uh, I think you need to do. Uh, this is this is the time. This has to do with two things. One is what I call the cryogenic story, right? And what happened in the cryogenic uh, thing. And the other one, the other one is about my colleague Nambi Narayan and what happened to him, right? Uh, these are not necessarily uh, the the. I mean, these are not necessarily the great stories that one wants to hear, but it also represents the kind of things that have changed over the time that uh, I was there. Now, <clears throat> now, one of the things that uh, that was a major trigger for ISRO is how do we get to GSLV, right? Now, if you look at the configuration of a GSLV, it depends upon the mass of the communication satellite that you have to put in orbit. Now, this is like a dynamic target. You know, when you look at the progress of the communication satellites, Every generation of satellite requires more and more weight, okay? So if you have to design a, a launcher to put that satellite in orbit, you've got to anticipate what the weight is going to be in the future, and you have to design for that. You also have to be realistic in your timing because if the launch vehicle gets delayed, you may not have an adequate capacity to be able to put a payload that is meaningful. Now, this was a real problem in the way we had to look at INSAT. When Professor Dhawan uh, had kind of decided to quit ISRO and resign, I mean, uh, and uh, take reti retirement from ISRO, he had come up with the idea that we would use the modules of PSLV, which we had already developed, and put on top of it a single cryogenic stage, which he believed should be developed in the country, and which would give us the required payload to put into geostationary orbit. And that was the configuration. He believed that ISRO would not capable of doing parallel things, that one focused project and one approach to doing it would be the right way to go. So this was what he kind of wanted. Uh, <clears throat> uh, when uh, Professor Dhawan left, ISRO wanted to take another look at all this. So we went through another series of studies and we finally came up with the possibility that uh, there were other ways of doing it. So one way which many people suggested at that time was we buy the cryogenic stage. Okay. 
And so that way we would save a lot of development time because cryogenic technology is difficult. It takes time and it's hard. It's not easy to do that. So the view was that we would explore the possibility that we could go and buy it. So we spent uh, a lot of time. Uh, so we went to uh, the US. They have a stage, CentOS stage, which could do the job. We went to Japan. They have another stage which could do the job. I think we went to the French and the Ariane and they could do the job. So we spent a couple of years trying to figure out whether these things were going to come up or not. I think the Americans said we'll take a look, but finally said no. The Japanese said no, a big no. I think the French said we will give it to you, but the price was $2 billion and all kinds of restrictions. So we couldn't afford it at that time. That was no. So we had to go back and do an indigenous development. So all this happened and we went and actually cleared a project with an indigenous cryo and the government had actually approved the project. Now, when this was happening, the Russians at that time, the Soviet Union had collapsed or on the verge of collapse. The Russians came up with this offer, right, of saying that we will uh, give you a cryogenic stage, okay, which you can use for. And they made us a very good offer, 200 crores or some number like that. They would give you this stage that we could put on the modules of PSLV in our own way and be able to launch it, right? So this was the, it was a very good offer and that Russian technology was pretty good. No question about all that. The only question that was a major issue was what would happen in terms of geopolitics, okay? Now you must remember there is something called the missile technology control regime, right? So the American view was that any, any uh, rocket stage that could put a certain amount of mass into a certain kind of into a certain kind of orbit would, uh, would be very important, okay? So they had put a, a kind of limit and the cryogenic stage that we were buying clearly came under that. Now, one of the things that went on in, deb in debate and I was actively involved in it was I said we should have a contingency option. We should have an indigenous alternative, even if we decide to do that. And the consensus in ISRO was that it was not what, what they wanted. So there was a lot of debate and we finally went and signed the Russian deal, okay? And one of the reasons why I left ISRO was also because at that time I had to get out of all this because, you know, this, all this happened. Now, I had actually made a prediction saying that uh, this is going to backfire because the Americans and the Russians had a huge space arrangement going, which was worth a couple of billion dollars, including all kinds of stuff that the Americans were just buying out of the erstwhile Soviet Union, okay? So I think precisely about a year later, the Soviet, I mean, the Russians went back on the deal and then we had to go through this complicated loop of doing not only the Russian engine and the stage, we also had to reverse engineer it, Indian engine, you know, and then we had to develop a new stage. So in a sense, you can argue that all the delays in the realization of the JSLV had to do with this kind of thing. I don't want to go too much into the details. There's a lot of geopolitics involved, but it's again an example of how geopolitics can actually directly affect many, many things. So this is one part. And the last thing I'd like to talk about is uh, what happened to my colleague Nambi Narayan. Okay, now, and this is again an example. This is after Professor Davan had left. Okay, now my colleague Nambi was accused of being a spy, right? And he was uh, put in. Uh, he was taken into custody and beaten up, and. Uh, and then finally, the CBI was ordered to inquire. The CBI found him, uh, uh, you know, no, 
not only didn't find them guilty but they said there's absolutely no evidence uh, behind the charge and he was released okay then the government uh, the kerala government uh, decided that uh, they would pursue the case further right and uh, so they actually uh, started uh, you know so the whole process could have repeated and uh, so this was the problem i had gone to see him i had gone to isro to see professor davan and i happened to meet him okay at that time and uh, he uh, so i spent uh, a couple of hours or maybe the whole day with him and i felt that it was something terrible and he was actually innocent and that we needed to do something about it now obviously i have no uh, you know what i call representative i am not an icon <laughs> do i have the what i call the political uh, recognition that you know these things can actually so i mean like i like i did with everything i went and uh, met professor davan and i sp- spoke to him about it and he said uh, chandra are you sure about everything and all in his standard style so i said sir, i i told him sir i think what is happening is correct he said chandra that's not enough i want to see everything so why don't you put together a dossier for me and all that so i and a couple of others who were very convinced about what had happened we actually put a lot of effort looked at all the uh, data looked at the cbi report looked at the investigation looked at all the paper clippings and what was being talked about and we provided a dossier okay and uh, i i mean to convince professor davan about all this is kind of difficult but i mean i must take the fact that he saw that there was a uh, very human related element that had to be uh, thought about so after all that he was finally convinced and then he said we will do one thing he said so he said we will put out an open letter right looking at all the evidence putting everything together and then trying to uh, say something about it and he said but before we do that and go public he said let me talk to uh, somebody he used to know uh, this chief justice of the court in kerala i don't forget, I, i don't remember his name but he was a personal friend of his a uh, krishnayer justice krishnayer he said i will send the papers to him and let him take a look at it and we'll see because he felt that maybe talking to the government in kerala or talking to the government in delhi maybe you know can be made to disappear and all that so I, i don't know what he had in mind so we did uh, send that out to them but we didn't hear anything so i think finally after another couple of months we decided that we would go public and uh, so we actually got uh, because of professor daman taking the initiative we got all the major people who were involved in isro to sign on that petition okay professor ashpal signed uh, professor rav uh, signed mr seshan signed um and then uh, professor narsimha was a member of the space commission and uh, also very closely associated with professor davan signed and i signed because professor davan said since you did all the paid work you should also sign so we actually signed that petition and we put it out into the and meanwhile the supreme court had heard it and it became what is called subjudication so i think professor narsimha went and consulted justice venkatachalaya and i think he said we should not do it and all that so i think we again had this debate and then finally professor davan said it doesn't matter we i think we have to do it and we finally went and did it i don't know whether it had any impact or not but according to nambi who was directly involved in it uh, the supreme court finally uh, you know came out in his favor he was awarded damages and then he pursued it for a long time and now more or less uh, everything is settled i think there's a film now being made upon it i don't know how much the film will actually <laughs> reflect all this reality but it was quite a messy affair 
and you know it represents this <clears throat> very unique combination of politics and uh, internal uh, differences and uh, all kinds of polar it's like you know this alignment of planets that people talk in astrology which i don't believe it seems to be a real life example where all these you know happened and this guy poor guy had to face the consequences so that's the other thing that i thought i should uh, kind of share with you right <clears throat> see when i joined isro i had two ambitions okay <clears throat> one was uh, i didn't believe i was going to live in india okay i mean very clear i had two ambitions i actually majored in finance economics and marketing in imc i'd kind of lost this belief in technology you know i was studied in iit fancy place all that i didn't get a job okay so i said what the hell why should i go and so one thing in in business is that you figure out uh, you know what is important and money is obviously important and economics and finance sounded to me and marketing sounded to me to be a great job opportunity so i actually had this interview with the tata administrative service okay i mean i don't know how they called me but they called me and that interview i didn't do i mean i didn't make it to the final round so so i was thinking of a tata job or a or a job in a bank or something like that and you know the ambitions of management guys are all you know very money minded i was not different i, I don't think i was very fundamentally different and then isro came to campus and they made me an offer now the reason i decided to take it seriously was my younger sister was in the institute of science doing a doctorate my elder sister had just gotten married and was moving to bangalore and my mother historically grew up in bangalore and she's a bangalore girl so i said i should i should therefore look at it and i came to isro my my priorities were very clear i said i'm going to spend maximum 2 years i'm going to learn a little bit and i'm going to join uh, you know do a lot of work on economics and join the world bank so this was these were my two main goals at that time so when i joined isro maybe the first few months i was not particularly doing anything great i mean it was like you know a kind of initial experience of feeling it out and all that so my first job was to manage the isro budget since i come with a management background and all that so we pioneered something that professor davan pioneered something called program planning and budgeting it's the first time in the country that we actually do what is called link money to programs and isro has this masterly transformation i don't know whether they still have it where you take the program related elements which make sense as from a technology a government uh, accounting which is horrible okay so you have to be able to convert from one form to the other and we kind of pioneered a lot of it so we started this program planning group and the systems programming analysis group so my first job was to control the isro budget which i think when i first joined it was 15 crores or something like that and i was responsible for managing we used to look at every 1000 rupees 10000 rupees and all that in those days because we were broke really broke and uh, i it was also a very powerful job because you know everybody who mattered in isro had to come to you because you were in charge of the money i remember dr kalam used to come right i mean so you actually had this fairly powerful position even though in the hierarchy i was possibly the lowest down in the in the hierarchy right so that was how it was so so what happened is i suddenly became particularly fascinated by the possibilities of space and initially i was looking largely at uh, you know the the vacuum in isro at that time was remote sensing because rajan and i were the only two people looking at it and so i decided that i would kind of learn a little bit about uh, looking at uh, so i you know we did a number of aerial surveys i was involved in a lot of that and all, i got involved and baskara i got involved and and irs i did a lot of the spade work and i got hooked okay um 
and the problem was professor davan saw this contradiction in me he, he was not sure i was going to stay so he and rajan my boss actually in 19 i don't remember the date but i think early on they decided that i would be sent out of the country i mean they wanted me to get exposed to the world so they sent me on a, a kind of a visit to california okay there was this uh, uh, remote sensing workshop that nasa was holding and i was nominated to go and attend that workshop and the wing commander raw who was the head of nrsa at that time was my was also there at that workshop with me so i got to know him also very well another great indian who nobody talked very much about so i worked there i, I did a, I, i went there and uh, you know he, they also made me visit i had a six week visit okay i went to all the scientific establishments and the nasa centers in the whole of california so from san diego which is on the southern thing all the way up to uh, san francisco and all that and you know i had a number of classmates from iit who were working in stanford for example i had a classmate in stanford they were all working on integrated circuits you know for ibm for intel and all all those companies that had started at that time and i came back very excited you know saying there's a lot of possibilities that So that trip made me realize that the kind of job that I was doing in ISRO was far more interesting in terms of challenges than what one would be able to do in the US. So in a sense it kind of transformed me from this outward looking, you know, foreign guy. I think it's a mistake frankly if I look at it in terms of but it happened, okay? And I think it had largely to do with ISRO culture and Professor Davan and this personal kind of impact that he had on all of us. Not only me, on all of us, Sudarshan and also me. so this is this is the point that uh, so i kind of changed okay and uh, and i think isro uh, so i remember professor davan sent me to the un to represent india when i was 26 so i was here i was speaking on behalf of the country on all kinds of matters of policy of course you go through this process of consultation so you i i at one stage in india i was the possibly the only guy on this on the legal regime of space i i used to know more than anybody else at that time and we all negotiated much of these treaties so all of us still are in a sense i i'm still very comfortable with all the space laws treaties etc even though i haven't done much in these areas now but it is there so you had all these kinds of uh, things that happened so that was something that uh, and you know i have always uh, even now i i i think space is something that is really kind of uh, uh, i'm in love with i also hate it at times when it you know when it, when you don't get what you think you should get but i kind of love it and it's something that i uh, i i don't know when i look at these pictures from uh, jupiter that nasa sent and all that i mean it's awesome what it can do right not only all the you know economic stuff and all that but look at it in terms of knowledge look at it in terms of doing a lot of other things and knowing about the world and uh, you know knowing all that So I kind of, uh, you know, spent a lot of, or wasted a lot of my life on on doing this part. So I know a lot about it, but my point is, I don't think it matters very much what you know. But <laughs> the final analysis. Uh, so uh, I moved to IIM, right, from ISRO. I think IIM was very good to me. I was, uh, I, I did a lot of work on technology which I had not done in ISRO. but a lot of that is through experience and the way to look at the world and the way to understand the world uh, and if you teach the theory gets grounded in practice so my understanding of how isro worked and how isro can be made to work and the organizational parts which are all there and it's uh, 
it's a very what shall we say fulfilling kind of thing so i have a number of cases i've written a lot on uh, i have cases on on space i have some cases on the columbia accident and how nasa does how isro does so all the stuff that can connect technology with business crisis management leadership those softer parts are quite there so for me it's been a uh, very you know the isro experience and uh, what i learned there has been a building block of uh, everything that i've done and as i said it's the shangri la of one's life okay i don't know whether i can ever get back to it no other organization for that period gave, gives you that satisfaction and i i would say that isro and my colleagues all of them who are so generous with what they knew and gave and parted with it was as i said a great place thank you for listening in to this episode of the new space india podcast if you enjoyed this conversation please share this episode with anyone you believe will enjoy listening to it you'll be able to find the new space india podcast in any of the podcasting platforms that you may be using including apple google spotify youtube and others do subscribe to the podcast in case you want to receive new episodes automatically i'm grateful if you're able to leave a rating for the podcast which will help others discover it thank you for listening in again and the next episode will be out in the next two weeks as usual